I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Ethan Klingsberg, a partner at Freshfields in New York. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, David. It's good to hang out. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, a little about your background and then antitrust and M&A, which is a multifaceted issue. And then finally, what your summer in New York City has been like after more than a year of COVID. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into M&A and your practice. Sure. Well, thanks again for doing this, David. Right now, my practice is mostly M&A, corporate, corporate governance issues, board advice. But how I got here, I would love to say it's a classic path, but uh, you know, you got a lot of it has to do with different circumstances that arise at different points in history and how they pushed me in different directions. You know, you come out of law school, you're very litigation oriented, which is a good thing. And I think it makes you a better corporate lawyer. And then I clerked for a federal judge, Judge Robert Patterson in the Southern District of New York, which was an amazing experience. All the trials and motion practice, very fact intensive. I think it's very, you know, I was just getting together with a lot of the clerks. One of our alumni, Judge Patterson, is hopefully will be the next district attorney, uh, Alvin Bragg. Another alum is, was Steve Pekin, who was the head of enforcement at SEC, but not a lot of corporate lawyers coming out of there. And then I went to Hungary, uh, which is, you're like, how did you do that? Because <laughs> I didn't know much Hungarian, nor do I have family there, but it was 1990 and the Berlin Wall had just come down and I figured out a way to get there through a little bit of money through a guy, George Soros, who no one had really ever heard of in 1990. I ended up getting a job after I arrived with the new president of the newly formed Constitutional Court. We did some amazing stuff about what to do with property rights and death penalty, abortion rights. So it was an amazing year. Then I came back. I worked at a white collar defense firm with a bunch of former prosecutors. Then I went back. To, I did that for about 10 months. Then I went back and uh, I was one of the people who helped start Central European University in Budapest with Soros. And we, we did a whole bunch of other programs all over the former communist countries on law reform and human rights. And then, then I started practicing so-called big law. And I was like, I was very dead set on doing litigation. And slowly I started going into corporate. At the time, there was a lot going on in Latin America with opening up to joint ventures and selling entities to Western multinationals. And I got involved in that. And a lot of those deals were very, there were no precedents and it was very novel and it was, was kind of fun. And I remember them being told, you've got to learn some law. So I started working with folks like Alan Beller and stuff on uh, learning Securities Act, Exchange Act. And then I started doing M&A really in a few years before I became an associate partner. And But the thing I, I go back to is I'd spent a lot of years sort of doing human rights, academia kind of things. And you know, it was exciting because I think I was I was very much in the right place at the right time. There were a lot of really interesting things happening in Eastern Europe. But one of the great things about corporate law is there's a really high premium put on building trust and 
although you being have to be straightforward, it's not like a lot about your own self glory. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and I found in academia and human rights, there was actually a lot of people trying to look out for themselves. Whereas it's very transparent what we're doing in corporate law. But I've always taken this kind of litigator's approach to corporate law, and I think one of the big problems these days among corporate lawyers is there's a lot of what I call process people who just process stuff. And they say, get me the precedent and their processors. And they get sort of a high from processing lots of stuff. And they get super high from processing an unbelievable amount of stuff. And meanwhile, it's like, well, why am I paying this guy you know, over $1,000 an hour? Because they're not really adding value. They're not ever thinking outside the box. They're not ever thinking, you know, why is this precedent really doesn't make sense in these circumstances? And we shouldn't try and fit this square peg into the round hole. I'm a big believer in standardization, but there's certain elements that deserve to be standardized, certain elements don't. And I think if you take a litigator's approach to that, you know, how is everything going to be resolved either before the regulator or before a court, you sort of can cut through a lot of the crap and add uh, value in certain ways because you're going to change the way you write certain provisions. You're going to change the way you structure certain items. And you got to wake up every morning and feel like you're in court that day on your M&A project or on your corporate governance issue. And that's kind of, you know, I think going through all the stuff in Eastern Europe where things were changing so much and there were, there were no precedents there. It's sort of been my motif in all this is don't be overly deferential to the way it's been done before. Think it through and be fresh and, and it keeps it alive. It also keeps you energized, frankly. And I think it makes it much more exciting for the people who work for you. And so, Ethan, how have you applied that approach to antitrust issues over the last year as they've become increasingly prominent in transactions? I'm glad you asked that question, David, because there's a real risk right now for clients in not getting antitrust uh, issues handled correctly. There's a risk that the corporate lawyers are going to be farming out too much of the antitrust risk assessment and transfer of the allocation and mechanics of how to deal with the risk assessment to the antitrust lawyers. Similarly, there's a risk that the antitrust lawyers are going to see their job as primarily advocating before the agencies, as opposed to one, making sure the contracts really work making sure the board understands correctly the nuances of the risk and, frankly, helping the company explain to its investors what's going on on the antitrust front, why they are doing certain transactions and why they're staying away from other areas. Because investors, I find, have very, actually, low understanding of a lot of antitrust issues. I like to say when investors I hear that a deal is going to be hard from an antitrust perspective. They just think that means the lawyers have to work hard as opposed to meaning that there's a really high chance you're not going to be able to get the deal cleared. So what we need to do on antitrust is, one, we need to get beyond this approach of just saying, well, it's just hell or high water or we're going to arm wrestle and agree on some middling standard because First of all, if you just say hell or high water, it doesn't mean that you're going to get your deal through necessarily. And by hell or high water, you mean a provision in the merger agreement that says that the buyer essentially has to do whatever it takes to get the deal approved by the relevant antitrust regulators. Right. So you'd think 
if you got to do hell or high water, you're set as the target, right? I got a buyer who says they're going to do whatever it takes, right? But it's actually kind of tricky because if you set, let's say you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes and I got six months to do it. And then let's say all of a sudden you realize that you have to, in month four, month five, that you have to do a bunch of complicated divestitures. And then the agency says, well, I'm not letting you close unless you have those divestitures done before you close. And I want to vet the buyer because I don't want you just selling to some private equity guy who's going to lever up the business and isn't really a competitor and won't be able to hang in there. Or I'm not, I don't want you to sell to someone who's not a so-called qualified competitor. And I don't want you just shutting down these assets. I really want to create competition. And meanwhile, perhaps you have some breakup fee, which the regulators are looking at. They're saying, wow, if we had this big reverse breakup fee paid by the buyer to the target, that can make the target really much stronger. And then they'd be a better competitor. So in our scientific effort to create a more competitive world, maybe the best thing to do is to do everything we can to stop this deal and get this reverse breakup fee paid. And so meanwhile, you have a hell or high water provision. We recently went into court on behalf of a seller and tried to get specific performance on a hell or high water provision. And the judge said, well, it looks like the other side's advocating in good faith you still have another seven or eight weeks. I'm not going to grant any kind of equitable relief to force compliance at this time. But then the judge warned, she said, you know, don't come back to me with a week to go and tell me you don't have things in order. The point here though, David, is where we're going on antitrust is we used to be in an era where people didn't want to telegraph in their provisions. Well, I'm going to try and fix things by doing X and Y and Z because they said, oh, maybe we'll get under the radar. I think that was a very Bush and Obama era antitrust approach. I think in the current era, that's kind of out the door. No one really is worried about telegraphing because they know that agencies are going to pick up on the issues. And so what we're seeing right now is a lot more detail in merger agreements on exactly what you need to do to solve for the antitrust risk. And that, so a lot of times we call it fix it first. And the idea is that we're going to build into the agreement before and make sure before we even file with the agencies that we've taken care of the issues. And there's a lot of psychology in that because that way, when you go to the staff, they have so much that they're focusing on right now. Then the staffers can say, well, I'm not really, I don't really need to put any energy into this. I suppose if you go to the staffers and you say, here's what I think we're going to do to fix. And I know there's some issues here. And then all of a sudden they're digging in. All of a sudden they got a second request. All of a sudden they're reviewing all of your clients' emails from the last year. And they're finding a couple of glib comments, which sound like you were trying to kill competition more broadly. And you got bigger problems on your hands. So The antitrust lawyers and the corporate lawyers have to become much more adept at building in and legislating in the agreement much more creative solutions and then just saying hell or high water or just saying, you know, everything other than a material adverse effect. I think we're getting into dealing with timing. And also then you have to take into account all the different regulators around the world, which have different timelines and approaches. So for instance, the CMA in England, who's now all over everything, 
I mean, I never even heard of the CMA a year ago. You know, we have deals with barely any UK connection where CMA is aggressively asserting itself into the middle of the, of the deal. So we're having to come up with creative ways of either carving out UK business from the rest of the business. But the, UK, the point I want to make is CMA, you don't file for months because you work with them like over and over on exactly what your filing is going to look like, much different than the US. And then they'll let you close, but they'll just say, oh, but you know, you have to hold everything separate for a year and a half. So if your only closing condition is clearance to close, then it's satisfied with CMA, no problem. They'll just say, yeah, 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 close. But you have a hold separate order for the next you know, 18 months. So you got to start redesigning the way you do your closing conditions. And then there's different agencies and different jurisdictions have different powers to block deals. Like in the US, you got to go to court. So the, the agency has to go to court. In Europe, they don't have to do that, right? And so there's all sorts of different provisions that you have to build in to address how to use your efforts to get the deal cleared, depending on which jurisdiction you're in and what you need to do to, to fight that. So it really re- it requires a lot of studying up by the corporate lawyers to make sure we got this right. Uh, and it requires a lot of integration with the antitrust lawyers. You got to talk to your litigators and think about specific performance and whether you have enough detail to get you specific performance. So those are just some of the challenges we're facing. And obviously, you've had antitrust enforcement by agencies around the world for decades at this point, certainly the entirety of your career. And, and those just from a process perspective, that, that's, uh, you know, always been something that's had to be managed. But it, it sounds like there's a far greater likelihood now that a buyer may have antitrust issues on a transaction in multiple jurisdictions and therefore that both the corporate and the antitrust lawyers have to think about how to potentially handle that before the merger agreement is signed. Yeah, well, remember, it's a competitive world out there right now in M&A. There's lots of buyers. It's still largely a seller's market. And so for the strategic buyers, they're quite conscious about not being prejudiced as bidders when they come in and they say, well, we're going to need 15, 16, 18 months to get to closing. You know, that's just not attractive to sellers these days, especially given the uncertainty that you'll get the clearance at the end of that period. You had periods like that during Obama and Bush. Mm-hmm. But the general feeling was, well, we'll get to closing anyway. Now, there's a real concern that, well, we're going to get tied up for all that, that, lo- that a period of that long a time, and we're not going to get to closing. And that just comes from just reading the newspapers about all the deals that are being blocked in all different sectors and about the different personnel. There's also, as I said, CMA is a total new wild card on the block. There's new rules in Europe now where it's much easier, even if the deals are not above thresholds for nation states to refer the matters to the European Commission. So you have the European Commission now dealing with a lot more deals. There's just a general feeling that a lot of deals were cleared over the last 15 years that should not have been cleared. And so even if a deal will ultimately be cleared through litigation, there's a feeling I think among a lot of the staffers around the world that it's better to give the deal strict scrutiny 
and push it up the ladder and not clear it easily uh, than just let things through. That it's better to lose at the end and have, have fought and really looked at it than to give anybody a pass. So all of that has led to an environment where there's a lot of skepticism on the side of targets that, that they don't want to get held up. And on top of that, compounding all this is, remember the environment we're living in, right? So you got folks trying to get out of deals because of interim operating covenant breaches. And that's a bring down in the closing conditions of only lowercase in all material respects. And so there's some real concern that if I have to, on the part of targets, if I have to keep my deal pending for over a year, that given the volatility in the macro world that we live in, that I'm going to get screwed because of some misstep on the interim operating covenants. So then I'm going to lose my deal. And then, you know, I'll just be damaged goods with a greatly reduced stock price. And I've lost all these development opportunities because I was hamstrung by interim operating covenants for over a year. A lot of these companies also are burning cash. You have a lot of high value companies with, that are just, you know, spending this burning cash and they don't want to wait so long. So there's a lot of push for creativity on the part of buyers to make targets more comfortable that they have everything they need to go back to their board and say, we really have an action plan to get us there promptly. A couple of follow-up questions. First, do you or your antitrust partners perceive any kind of tension between how the you know, the bulk of the staffers at antitrust agencies, many of whom spend their entire careers or a huge chunk of their careers as regulators, view these issues as compared to how these issues may be viewed by much more senior people who obviously in the U.S. are political appointments. Yeah, I mean, look, there's always a political element to this. And clearly, the staffers have been through different regimes. I think the idea is to make it easier on the staffers. And that plays into what I described earlier as a fix-it-first type of idea or not make them feel that, that you've done the work for them so that they don't feel like they need to cover themselves by pushing your deal into a second request or escalating it. So that's the idea is to structure your antitrust provisions and your approach in a way that caters to them so that you can partner basically with the staffers in protecting your deal from attention from those higher up. And then second, you mentioned investors' perspectives on antitrust. How much education can, especially a buyer, realistically do with its investor base about what is and isn't realistic to expect in terms of interacting with a regulator? Yeah. And the whole investor world is interesting, right? Because you've got the activists who have made a ton of money on pushing for transactions that raise antitrust issues. Whether that you saw a lot of times you have the activists investing in two entities that they would like to see consolidate and realize synergies. And a lot of times, you know, they're just in favor of breakups where they see opportunities for different pieces to go to competitors of those pieces. And of course, sales of companies is a big part of their campaigns. So those guys, I think, 
uh, you know, although on one hand, they're among the most sophisticated investors, on the other hand, I'm not sure they really appreciate yet how much antitrust is an impediment to what they're trying to achieve. So that will be a challenge. And I've seen this for years, you know, going back to even like the family dollar deal where they were telling us we were idiots for family dollar, not taking the higher bid from dollar general. And we said, well, we couldn't because of antitrust issues. And they, that just, how could an antitrust issue possibly get in the way of earning another $15 a share? And I, I still think they're largely there. What I think is interesting though is there's a lot of other investors out there, pension funds, passive strategy folks, who generally are in favor of M&A and as a way of increasing share price. And I'm talking about this on the side of the buyers and the merging parties, not just as a way of getting a sale premium. Of course, there's a lot of funds out there that are looking to invest in companies that they think are going to sell themselves for a premium. But even those who see themselves as long-term investors in companies like to see those companies generally engage in good strategic M&A. I'm not sure that they appreciate the extent to which antitrust changes are going to have costs for the market and for the ability of their investments to uh, continue to grow in value. I'm not putting a marker down saying that I'm opposed as a policy matter to antitrust enforcement. My point is just that I don't think that a lot of investors in public companies that are pressuring boards to meet and come up with good M&A strategies really appreciate the constraints that are being put on the companies. And so just in the last month and a half, I've participated with several clients in M&A strategy sessions where it's been me and usually one antitrust partner from DC and another antitrust partner from Europe. And we go over the strategies and talk about how can you implement elements of this strategy given the changed uh, antitrust environment and what's going to be able to happen. And then I try and transition it to, okay, so we can do X, but we can't go in Y. How are we going to signal this to our investors so they don't get pissed off that we're not doing a certain roll-up strategy anymore? Or, you know, we're sort of tapped out in this direction, but we think we have room to go in another direction. And I think that kind of signaling is important to manage investors and becomes super important when, you know, you're subject to a hostile proposal or something and and you're trying to resist because you just don't think the deal's doable. But it's important on the buy side as well to manage that. And then there's also a whole play, which I'm not as involved in, but I do speak to the people at clients who do things like government relations. And they're trying, you know, they want to shape the future of antitrust. And they're very concerned that not all the players in the system and all these ecosystems understand the impact that changes in antitrust are going to have on different elements of the M&A ecosystem. Because certainly in tech, the ability to sell relatively young companies to larger, more established companies has... 20 years and more been a a central part of venture capital strategies. Yeah, that's a a really great point. That's a whole other world of M&A, which I haven't even spoken about, but that could really be adversely impacted in a major way by antitrust changes. So just to so everybody knows what we're talking about, there's a huge world of M&A that takes place in the under $1 billion range, but sometimes it 
ends up going into the multiple billions where, you know, startups are sold to primarily tech acquirers. But in the last several years, a bunch of industrials have been buying these companies and even some retailers. It's just a good way to spend cash. I'm not talking about making VC investments. I'm talking about buying these companies outright. A lot of the deals are below the antitrust threshold. A lot of times they're done in a manner that, that's referred to as aqua-hires, because they're just really trying to get the personnel. Sometimes there's IT that's at stake. Sometimes there's a really good brand. But the thing that's really important is the whole tech ecosystem of the United States is founded on, in part, having this exit available. So you have the VC guys invest in founders. They take the company. Some of these companies are great candidates to be de to sell to SPACs and go public. Some of them are great candidates for IPOs. Some of them can stay private for quite a number of years and get late stage financing. But lots of them, and I don't have the percentages, but my bet is it's at least 50% are the best thing for them to do is to sell to an established company that can provide them with the capital and the home to take their ideas and move on. And what's if some people often ask me, why don't the companies just hire the employees, the engineers, if that's really what they want primarily? Or why don't they just buy a license to the IP? And the answer is really, it's like the minor leagues, right? And the VCs, the venture capital funds are funding this minor league. And the deal is when these guys get elevated to the major leagues, the venture capital guys that were the equity holders alongside the founders, the venture capital guys have to get paid for financing and sponsoring this minor league system. And that's the way they get paid. And then eventually, most a lot of these founders go work for a larger company. And then often after several years, they leave and then they go back to the VCs and they say, let's do it all over again. I have a new idea. And that's actually fine, I think, with a lot of the big companies because they want these guys to go out and start new ideas. And many of them even have separate arms of venture capital investing, many of the big companies. And then they themselves are financing the so-called minor league farm system there. But if you start saying that these deals are killing nascent competition, and therefore all these deals now have to be reviewed under Hart-Scott, and we're going to start having second requests, and we're going to look skeptically on these, and we're going to really try and shut this part of the farm system down, that could have pretty serious implications for venture capital investing and all of the amazing things that have come from that system. Maybe we'll end up with more IPOs. I don't know. Maybe we'll end up with, maybe a lot of these companies are being sold prematurely and we'll end up with a lot of beautiful public companies. Maybe we'll end up with a lot more SPACs where we have basically public investors investing in companies that are public, I think, a lot of them prematurely. And that'll be great for people like me because then I have all these public company clients who you know, have all sorts of challenges on their hands and will help them work through those. But it will definitely have an impact and things won't be going... It's not, Because right now, the last 25 years, this system has been humming really nicely and it will change it seriously. And then finally, summer in New York this year, after a year plus of COVID, you live on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. What's that experience been like? Uh, David, it's pretty strange. You know, I was away for quite a while. 
I was out of the city, but then I came back. I still have one child in high school and he was so happy to sort of reintegrate into social life starting uh, this spring. And so he kept me in the city and we've had fun. We were in Marcus Garvey Park a few weeks ago for uh, the showing of an amazing movie called Summer of Soul, which is, you know, it was just a great New York event. Summer stage is really a good thing. There's some other great events I've gone to there. And I wish I could do more. You know, I, I went six weeks without getting in the subway or a car. I do everything on city bike, which is uh, I showed up to a number of meetings, pretty sweaty, and pretty entertaining. And but, you know, now then I start getting weird things like, you know, a client called me the uh, I guess it was July 5th was the federal holiday and said, you know, can you be somewhere in the Midwest tomorrow at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, Midwest time. And then I the other clients say, we're coming to your offices to camp out for the last uh, 10 days. So, the, and then other clients are like, hey, why don't we get together and work this through in person? And they're like, are you crazy? I've got a six-year-old and a seven-year-old at home who are unvaccinated. I don't want any of that. So, you know, we've had like in the office, we've had back to office celebrations where we all hang out, we go drinking and things like that. But then we also are doing a lot of virtual drinking. (laughs) One thing I'll note at Freshfields, you know, we've hired a lot of people right before COVID. And so we have this very warm group. We've had amazing retention in the corporate group. And, you know, it's just a very warm thing, but that's been almost all virtual, which is kind of amazing how much time we've spent with each other virtually. A lot of time one-on-one, a lot of time nurturing each other, making sure we're all hanging in there. But the city is, I don't know, it's one big city bike as far as I'm concerned. Looking for more cool things. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us. All right, man. Well, I look forward to eating herring and drinking with you in person and sometime before we're too old. (laughs) For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.